Jesus' name, to put you on leave the entire time. I wasn't finished. Yeah, we could have finished. Correct. life has anything to gain at all i'll count a loss if i can hear you feel you cause i need you can walk this earth alone i recognize i'm not my own so before i fall i need to hear you feel you as i live to make my boast in you alone with every breath i take with every heartbeat Sunrise or the moonlights in a dark street. Every glance, every dance, every note of a song. It's all a gift undeserved that I shouldn't have known. Every day that I lie, every moment I covet. I'm deserving to die, I'm just earning your judgment. Ah, without the cross, there's only condemnation. If Jesus wasn't executed, there's no celebration. So in times that are good, in times that are bad, for any times that I've had it all, I will be glad. And I will boast in the cross, I'll boast in my pains. I will boast in the sunshine, boast in his rain. What's my life if it's not praising you? Another dollar in my bank account of ain't pursuit. I do not count my life as any value or precious at all. Let me finish my race, let me answer my call. But it is, we swear Think we holding our own Just a fistful of air God has never been obligated to give us life If we fought for our rights We'd be in hell tonight Mere sinners owe nothing but a fierce hand We never loved him We pushed away his fierce hands I rejected his love, grace, kindness, and mercy Dying of thirst, yet willing to die thirsty Eternally worthy How could I live for less? Patiently, you turn my heart away from selfishness. I volunteer for your sanctifying surgery. I know the Spirit's purging me of everything that's hurting me. Remove the veil from my darkened eyes. So now every morning I open your word and see the sunrise. I hope in nothing, boasting nothing, only in your suffering. I live to show you glory, dying to tell your story.
brothers and sisters. I want to welcome you back to life. Back to the one that can make your next chapter your best chapter. Hallelujah. How can it be? Good morning. Welcome to Gather Worship. Let's stand to sing together. Shout it out. 
love is greater, your love is stronger, your love awakens, awakens, awakens me, your love is greater, your love is stronger, your love awakens, awakens, awakens me, your love is greater, your love is stronger, your love awakens, awakens, awakens me, your love is your love is stronger. Your love awakens, awakens, awakens me. Your love awakens me. Your love is greater. Your love is stronger. Your love awakens, awakens, awakens me.
deserve you as our fortress why would you fight for us thank you Jesus that you grant us this gift John 1 teaches that all who receive you who believe in your name you give the right to become children of God because of your cross our spirits are made alive in regeneration. We can relate to you in prayer and worship, hear your word with receptive hearts. Because of your cross, Jesus, we are made innocent before the law of God in justification. We have right legal standing before the Father. God, it is possible that you could have stopped there, making us spiritually alive, having right legal standing before you, and yet not members of your family with the special privileges of family members, not made your children like the angels, but this gift of adoption that we received at salvation gives us Jesus's loving Father as ours. Father, you have made us your heirs. We are loved and protected by you. How sweet it is. We are in your care. You are our protection. We cry to you as our Abba. We rest there. Thank you, Christ. Thank you, Christ, for making us children of God. In you we pray. Amen. You may have your seats as we prepare to come to the table together. As the family of God, remember we approach as children having an Abba Father whose heart is gentle towards us while calling us to sin no more as we avow anew the covenant of the cross here at the communion table. Here at the table, we remember the death of Christ. We ask the Spirit to search us and reveal our sin. We repent to God and others, and we long for the day when we will feast together in heaven. Believer, if you're clinging to sin rather than coming to this table, go to our Abba Father. Confess your sins. Cling to Jesus who was slain for your forgiveness. Kids, please check with your parents to determine if you should come. If you're not a believer, rather than coming to the table, we encourage you to speak to God in your heart. Seek him while he may be found. He is ready and willing to adopt you into the family of God. Please speak to one of us after services about next steps on your faith journey. If you don't mind, please use the center two aisles to come forward and the side aisles to return you to your seats. It's okay if walking is messy. Let's be patient with one another as we come to receive the elements together. Believers, please come forward when you are ready.
and we take the bread representing Christ's life that was broken for us. We hold in view the inconceivably agonizing suffering of the crucifixion we see there, his extravagant love and unmerited favor for us. We experience abundant life now by renewed fellowship with God and long for eternal life with him forever. So as Christ instructed his disciples, we too receive this bread in remembrance. Let's take the bread together. We take this cup representing Christ's blood poured out from a splintered cross. We acknowledge him as the supreme sacrifice for all our sin, past, present, and future. We are free from the power and penalty of sin because of his blood shed for us and his body broken for us. We rejoice in his victory over death, the death that we deserve, the punishment meant for us today. We remember and celebrate the good news of our salvation purchased by the blood that was spilled. Let's take the cup together. Join me in prayer. Christ, you are the victor, and all who are in you are victorious by your spirit. Lead us to walk accordingly. We pray in your name. Amen. Usher, staff, and elders, please prepare to receive this morning's offering. Methods to give are above. Join me in prayer again for our offering. Powerful God, do what only you can do with these gifts. Use them to build up your kingdom on earth. Begin in our hearts, continue in our community, and cover the earth with your glory, with the gospel and provision, we pray, through Christ. Amen. Prosper your work and defend thee. 
Surely His goodness and mercy you're daily attending. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. If with His love He befriend thee. together for the reading of this morning's text. Praise the Lord. Music, thank you for joining us this morning in worship. Um, as you know, uh, I, I read last week, and so I'm up here again. This is not a rerun. Um, <laughs> So, um, however, uh, Justin Hamilton, another elder, was supposed to read today, and uh, he had other obligations, and so he's filling in there. And uh, when they put the APB out for someone to read, I, I jumped at it, actually. First one to respond in email in years. And, uh, <laughs> but the reason I really jumped at the chance is because this passage is a critical part of my personal testimony coming to Christ. Without going into great detail, I went to Bible college right out of high school and first year got kicked out of Bible college. Before I got kicked out, the president of the college led me to the Lord and uh, repented of my sin. And then I had to make the call to my dad to come get me. And, and he did. <laughs> and I'm grateful for that. There was no accusation, there was no judgment. It was a long six hour ride home, but uh, I'm reminded of what the Lord does to us. He runs to us and comes, gets us and rescues us. So follow along as I read <clears throat> page 821 in the Bibles and the chair back's in front of you. <clears throat> now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not lead the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I had never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that when we come to you in our sin and shame, that you are there to receive us and welcome us. You don't run from us. You don't hide from us. 
and we know that you will receive us. So, Lord, I just pray as we walk through this passage today that your word would speak to our hearts and our minds, but also change our lives. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time of worship together. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Mr. Craig. The gospel is scandalous. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, it's scandalous. It contradicts everything our world and culture throws at us. Contradicts all the other religious system. Defies conventional wisdom, the way we think it ought to actually work. This is what justice is. The gospel is scandalous. Scandalous. For those of you who've been around Christianity for a while, you are probably familiar with a character by the name Saul of Tarsus. We meet him in Acts chapter 7 as he is presiding over the execution of Stephen, the first man to die for the scandalous gospel. And the reason Saul of Tarsus is so angry at Stephen and those who were following the way of Christ is because they opposed everything that Saul of Tarsus, who was a religious Pharisee, stood for. The book of Leviticus, full of temple law, sacrificial law, all of these things that if you were going to honor God, you had to do. And Saul of Tarsus had committed his life to this sort of ritual purity. And there was a guy named Stephen who's saying, you don't have to do it anymore. You can be forgiven not because you've brought a lamb to slaughter, but you can be forgiven by calling on the name of Jesus. The gospel was scandalous to Saul of Tarsus. And so he went out killing people. If we had asked Saul, how do you justify your killing of these Christians under the law because Saul believed in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, but Saul would have probably said something like, I am, I am passionate to defend God. And like the Old Testament priests who defended God's holiness by killing apostate Israelites, I am cut from that same cloth. Saul saw the scandalous nature of the gospel and he hated it. For folks like Saul, holiness was, was so crucial and having this ritual holiness was so crucial. And one of the ways you ensured you were ritually holy is by avoiding any interaction with big sinners. 
In Saul's framework, salvation came through segregation. You got a bunch of icky, yucky sinners over there. Well, whatever you do, don't talk to them. And you're certainly not supposed to touch them. Now I know Saul's not mentioned in our scripture here this morning, but that attitude that Saul had is clearly on display, especially in verses 1 to 2 as these Pharisees and scribes were grumbling at Jesus. Did you see in the scripture why they're grumbling? They're grumbling because Jesus keeps talking to big sinners. Jesus is eating supper with the people that we shouldn't even be seen around. What is this Jesus guy doing? The religious leaders are grumbling. Doesn't Jesus know that part of holiness code, part of salvation comes from segregation? Well, this morning we're walking through Luke 15. And what we're going to see is Jesus confronting this smug, self-righteous attitude. And here's, here's why it matters for us today. It is just so normal for us to walk into a church like this and for us to look down our nose at a guy like Saul in the same way that Saul looked down his nose at people like Stephen. But I think, but I think this very same smug, self-righteous attitude is still in our church. I think it's in our leadership. I think there's times it shows up in me. And so then God and his sovereignty put Luke 15 in our Bible to confront all of us here. All of us who have ignored the wickedness of our hearts and our self-righteousness. Any in here who, who don't rejoice when sinners repent. For any in here who don't understand that the heart of God is to see the lost come to salvation. And Luke is going to put the scandalous nature of the gospel on display with three parables. Three parables. And they will point to our sermon in a sentence. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. This is what Luke 15 is doing. Saying, don't ignore God's mercy to sinners. Instead, rejoice when the lost are found. For any of us in here who come in with this self-righteous spirit, don't ignore God's mercy to sinners. Instead, rejoice when the lost are found. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Luke 15? I've already mentioned verses 1 and 2 in this introduction, so I want to jump in to the first little story, the first parable. Verses 3 to 7, rejoice, the lost sheep is found. Rejoice, the lost sheep is found. Jesus begins with a highly relevant word picture for their culture. Last time I checked, I don't think any Mill Creekers are shepherds. Just by show of hands, raise your hand if this is your full-time job. You are a shepherd. Yep, still none. Okay, so in their culture, though, shepherding was a totally understood occupation. And what everyone knew is, if you have 100 sheep 
and you count them and there's only 99 and, and you're in a safe place in the open country, then the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one. Well, why did the one run away? Because sheep are dumb. Just what sheep are, wandered away, and the shepherd knows. That sheep isn't going to all of a sudden go, let me check my GPS. I've got a phone on me here. Oh, that's where they... No, the, the shepherd is going to go find the sheep. He's going to find that sheep who's wandered away. He's going to put that sheep who's probably tired and exhausted on his shoulders, and he's going to walk that sheep back to the flock because that's what a good shepherd does. That concept may be a little foreign to us if we've never read this story before, but that's what everybody understood. Verse 6, the shepherd comes home and he says, Rejoice with me, friends. I found the lost sheep. And the point then, verse 7 of this first parable, just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Jesus showing us the point of the first parable. There's a party when the lost sheep gets found, which is parallel to someone who doesn't believe in the scandalous nature of the gospel. But that phrase there at the end is a little curious. 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Perhaps your, your brain's going, wait, do they, are there really righteous people who need no repentance? What does Jesus mean there? And I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but based on the context and Jesus confronting these religious leaders, they would have thought to themselves, we are ritualistically clean. We are ceremonially holy because we have segregated ourselves from the big sinners. We are righteous before God. And so Jesus is poking at that, not pretending that these religious leaders are actually technically righteous in the ways that we think of it. How one commentary put it, in light of the emphasis in Luke Acts on the universal need of repentance, you see that in Luke 3, 3, and the evil of humanity that was established in Luke eleven thirteen. This is best understood as ironic for those who think they are righteous and have no need to repent. That's what Jesus is getting at. Just want you to understand that this first parable's Luke's way of not declaring religious leaders righteous, but instead confronting them. And just like the shepherd and his friends are rejoicing when the lost lamb is found, so heaven has a party too when the lost repent. First story done, point made, Jesus goes to a second one, verses 8 to 10, rejoice, the lost coin was found. There in verse 8, we find a woman with 10 coins. See that there in the text? For what it's worth, each one of these coins is worth several hundred dollars. So when she loses one, oh no, you gotta go finding that lost coin. She goes searching, and good news, she gets it, she finds it. And look at her response when she finds the lost coin. She calls her friends and neighbors and says, let's celebrate with me. I found my lost coin. It's short, it's sweet, the point's already there in verse 10. G just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Do you see then how this entire chapter 
is pointing at the heart issue of the religious leaders. Jesus is using common sense stories to say to them, look, you'd rejoice with a shepherd if he found a lost, you'd rejoice with a lady if she found her lost coin. This is what heaven does when a person comes to know Jesus. Come on, religious leaders. Well, if the first two stories are jabs, this last story that Jesus tells, it's a knockout punch. Perhaps the most famous parable of all, the prodigal son. Even if you're here and you're like, man, I'm brand new to Christianity, perhaps you've already heard of this story. But let's walk through the third story that Jesus tells to make sure we understand Luke's intention. P.S. kids, if you're thinking, man, we only had three points in the sermon. He's already done with two, and he's only a couple minutes in. We're getting out of here early. This last one takes a lot longer than the first two, so sorry about that. But it's good. Here's point three. Rejoice, the younger son came home. There in verse 11, we meet, we meet the main characters of this parable. There's a father and he has two sons. And the way this parable works, we're going to focus on the younger son and then it's going to transition to the older son. That's the way Jesus tells the story. The first half of the parable follows the younger of the two sons. The younger son makes an absolute fool of himself in verse 12. And those of you who've studied this passage or perhaps have heard sermons on this passage already know that when the younger son says, hey, dad, I want my share of the inheritance, the younger son is making a culturally unforgivable statement. The younger son is functionally saying, dad, I really wish you were dead because then I could get my share of your money. So do me a, like, do me a solid, Dad. Just, just, let's just act like you're dead and give me my money. That's what he does. Younger son makes a total fool of himself. The father obliges. Verse 13, the younger son makes another foolish mistake. He decides he wants to leave dad's home. And he travels far away from his father. He goes to a far off place, something like the equivalent of our Las Vegas. And there, this likely teenager spends all the money in reckless living. Prostitutes and cash, all of it's flying around, which of course would have been so scandalous to the religious leaders listening to this parable. The nerve that Jesus has in telling a story about a younger son who goes to Vegas. Problem, of course, is the younger son runs out of money, doesn't he? Verse 14. And then the double whammy. He's out of cash and there's a famine. So he has to get a job. He has to get a job. And the only one he finds is one in which he's feeding pigs. See that there in verse 15? In fact, as he's feeding pigs, verse 16, he's so hungry that the pig slop actually looks like a nice little appetizer for his belly. 
Now, kids in here, I'm confident you know enough about pigs to realize the kind of pigs we're talking about in this story is a lot different than the TV show some of my kids watch called Peppa Pig. In case you're not fluent with elementary aged Peppa Pig, these characters wear nice clothes, dad wears a suit, they snort before they talk, but other than that, they're quite clean, quite wholesome. Now, this isn't Peppa Pig. This is like legit pigsty stuff. If you've ever been to a pigsty, you know you're there, not because you can see it, but because you smell it a long way off. It's nasty. By show of hands, anybody run a pigsty here? Right on, right on. You, you know somebody runs a pigsty because, because your kids say when you meet them, why does it stink? <laughs> well, this pigsty is smelly and gross. And imagine as you've got a bunch of pigs rolling around in the mud, how hungry do you have to be to look at their food and go, mm-mm-mm, that sounds real nice for lunch. I mean, that's just nasty, right, kids? Ugh. In Jewish culture, though, it's actually even worse than that because pigs were ceremonially unclean. Working with pigs in the Jewish culture is hitting rock bottom, and that's really what Jesus is saying. This younger son has hit rock bottom. In our culture, the closest I think we can get to it would be somebody who's homeless, addicted, friendless, penniless. There's just not much worse that this younger son can go. But as it turns out, hitting rock bottom isn't the worst thing that can happen to a person. Turns out, hitting rock bottom can actually be a gift. Because when you hit rock bottom, you actually get to where you where you can think clearly for a moment and you have to decide, is this it for my life? Or am I gonna do something different that's gonna put me in a different place? I love the way one pastor puts it at this point. When this younger son came to himself, he came to his senses. When his incessant sinning had left him utterly bankrupt and hungry, he was able to think more clearly. And in that condition, that hitting rock bottom condition, he was a candidate for salvation. So look what happened in verse 17. Now when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I'll arise and go to my dad and I, I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. Church, what we're seeing here is repentance. That's what we're seeing here. This is repentance. The younger son acknowledging his mistakes against his dad and his willingness to leave the pigsty, leave rock bottom, and go back to his dad. He's got to go home. 
Now, to be fair, the younger son and this little self-talk we've just heard, he realizes he's not going to be reinstated as a son because he committed the culturally unforgivable offense, so he expects he will remain disinherited, but that's okay. And, and as he returns to his dad's farm, as it were, he doesn't expect that he's going to have the same authority there as he had before. He just wants to be called a servant. Just make me the lowest guy on the totem pole that works for you. Then my favorite part, middle of verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Why is, why is our master storyteller give us that little detail? While he's still a long way off, his dad saw him. Why does it not say, when the younger son turned the corner around the barn, dad saw him? Or, or, or why doesn't it say, when the younger son knocked on the porch, dad, dad looked through the screen to see his younger son? Why does it say, when he was a long way off, his dad saw him? And, of course, the answer is, the only way you can see somebody a long way off is if you're looking. If you're looking. That's the implication. His dad has been watching that horizon, waiting and look at it, middle of 20, while he's still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In their culture, a dad running was another cultural faux pas. How cringy that the dad would run. That dad's honorable dads don't do that. This dad does. Well, we've already heard that speech that the, that the son had prepared. Dear father, blah, 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 blah. Treat me as blah, 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 blah. But notice in the scripture, verse 21, as the younger son begins his little prepared talk, the father interrupts him. The younger son doesn't get through his whole prepared talk and, and, and dad doesn't actually even talk to the younger son first. Look who the dad talks to first. 22, the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. All right, do you, get, do you have the picture in your mind, right? Dad's sitting on the porch looking at the horizon. His son comes walking over the hill. He goes out, runs and gets him. Somehow a servant knows to keep up with dad. The son begins to say, well, blah, 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 blah. Dad interrupts him to tell the servant, it's a party time. Oh, and get this. I learned in my study this time around, the robe wasn't just a robe. The robe symbolically communicated reinstatement. When that son gets a robe, dad says, you're my son again. You're going to wear my robe. Oh, and get this. A ring isn't just a ring. A ring is a designation of authority. 
You have authority on my farm. You're my son and you have authority. Oh, and get this, shoes aren't just shoes. The only people who wore shoes were the family. Servants never wore shoes. So here's the son with this whole prepared, oh, I'm just going to be a servant, dad, blah, 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 blah. Dad says, yeah, right. You're back. This son was at his father's home and he was a full son. Church, this is scandalous. This is, this father's response is unlike any other religious system in the whole world. Every other major not have a father like this. Every other world religious system has a father who says, I don't even know if I'll take you back. Maybe you come work for me for free for a while and I'll see if you really mean it. And if you can follow the rules enough, maybe I'll reconsider this whole thing. Or more extreme, many world religious systems would say, nope, you're out, see ya. Not this one. No, in our religious system, God can forgive and offer scandalous grace because his wrath was poured out on a perfectly righteous and obedient son. Now, we've still got to talk about the older brother. That's what this whole section is really about. But I've just got a sidebar here real quick, and I need to talk to anybody in here who finds himself identifying with a prodigal son. See, see if, if you're here and you read this and you go, oh, dear, this, this younger son is exactly who I am. Maybe you've hit rock bottom. Or maybe you're close to hitting rock bottom, and you know it. If in your soul you are hungry and desperate and bankrupt and you realize that you've played the fool, you are in a wonderful position right now because you are a candidate for salvation. See, hitting rock bottom isn't the worst thing that can happen. You could be welcomed back to the Father's house. You could be welcomed by the Father if you would repent. Now, I know that's a big fancy word. That's a $5 Christian word, repentance, but it's really simple. All repentance means is, is realizing you have played the fool and you do not deserve the Father's love, but you have sinned. And, and repentance then just means agreeing with Jesus that like the sheep, You've been stupid and you wandered away. Repentance means realizing that like the coin, you are helpless to be found. That There is nothing that coin could do to be located. It needs someone to find it. Repentance means realizing like the younger son, you have made awful decisions and you are facing the consequences, but you want to be welcomed by the Father. That's what this means. And I know that that's a tough pill to swallow. Understand, all of us who are Christian in this room have swallowed that pill. It's a tough pill to swallow, but there's great freedom in the truth, even if it makes you mad at first. So friend, don't, don't 
hide anymore. You don't have to rationalize your sin. You don't have to excuse yourself. God knows everything you've done. He knows all your secrets. He knows all your motives. And if you would just admit to God, I'm a total complete mess, then you would be believing the truth and you would be a candidate for salvation. And God would save you. For the father, as it were, right now, he's sitting on the porch and he's looking down the road for you. That you would go, yep, guilty is charged, but I want to go to my heavenly father's home. And he would run, he'd hug you and kiss you and welcome you into the family. If you decided to do that today, heaven would have a party. And frankly, I'd like us to have a party too. Sidebar over, back to the parable. We are in verse 25. We need to finish with the older son. This is what the whole section of Luke 15 is about, who, if you look there in verse 25, he is walking in from the field and he hears a ruckus and he wants to know what's happening because it sounds like a party. Indeed, older brother, there is a party because your younger brother has come home. In verse 28, the older brother is mad. The older brother, like Saul of Tarsus, was at Christians. He feels like the father's mercy is unfair. This isn't right. Hey, dad, you're not being just because that younger son isn't getting what he deserves. And look at all the bitterness that this older brother is spitting out when his dad comes to talk to him, verse 29. But he answered his father, look. These many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? Like the older brother saying, what's wrong with you, dad, you mental? This is, of course, Jesus' way of getting to the heart of those religious leaders who were grumbling that he was hanging out with tax collectors as if Jesus is looking them in the eye and saying, here's your problem, friends. Here's your problem, religious leaders. You're so mad at God that you're on the outside. Oh, you thought you were inside. Oh, you thought you were following all the rules, but you're not on the inside. You're on the outside, and we don't know what's going to happen to you. One of the commentators called this parable one of a great reversal. One in which the religious leaders who we think are in actually are out. And the son that we thought was out, he's in. Do you see the storytelling mastery of Jesus? And the parable ends on a cliffhanger, doesn't it? Do you see how it ends? I mean, if you're looking at it and going, well, where's verse 33 that tells us what the older son's going to do? That's the storytelling mastery of Jesus because this is the invitation. What what Jesus is doing is he's saying, now what are you going to do, religious leaders? Are you going to permanently stay outside this party when the lost son comes home? Or are you going to come in and start dancing with us? 
uh, Jeremy, we're Baptists, so you need to pick a different picture than dancing. <laughs> oh, we're dancing Baptists. That's what's up. It's in the text. So that's the question Jesus is ending with. Will you rejoice that the younger son came home? Finishing our chapter and confronting all who share the Saul of Tarsus attitude. For any in here who have this self-righteous, smug attitude, our application primary is to repent of self-righteousness. And if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write that down. Repent of self-righteousness. This is the dominant desire of Luke and in Jesus' storytelling mastery. Repent of self-righteousness. See, church, there is a spiritually deadly disease that has infected so many of us, and we don't even know it's there. And it is operational, and if we don't repent of it, it will send us to hell. We must repent of this sin of self-righteousness by realizing that every one of us in here is as big of a sinner as anyone in the world. And if you don't get that, I'm just wondering if you're really a Christian. Because if you think, I'm actually better than so many people, and when I get up to heaven, I'm going to tell God, look, the reason you should let me in is because I'm two standard deviations more holy than all of my friends, right? That ain't the way it works. I've heard it said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, which means that any of us, all of us, we are just as wicked and awful as anybody we know, and yet we're still thrilled that we would be invited to go home to our Father. Let us repent of self-righteousness in the same way that we are to repent of all our sins. I think there are some of us in here who, who actually think we are better than other people. And that's part of the reason that God wants to welcome us into heaven. And that is the attitude Jesus is attacking. Now, some of you may be like, okay, pastor, I just, I don't think I'm better than other people. And, and I wonder if it's because you, you've got it all confused Fine, you don't have the soul of Tarsus attitude in which you think ceremonial cleanliness is what makes God pleased with you, but I just see it all over the place. Christians are guilty of this. Non-Christians are guilty of this. We, we come up with frameworks we put on everybody, then, then we just decide, you're bad, I'm good. And, and so one of the ways it can happen here is we think to ourselves, oh, you watch that kind of a TV show? Oh, you watch that kind of a movie? Oh, okay, now I know who you are. You're bad, I'm good. Oh, you spend your money on those things? Oh, now that, now it makes sense. Bad, I'm good. Oh, you listen to those songs on the radio? Oh, you like to do that as a hobby? Oh, you dance when a fun song comes on? There it is. I'm good, you're bad. You read those books? Oh, you go to a church that actually doesn't open their Bibles for the sermon? Ha, ha, ha. You bad, I'm good. And we just do this all the time. Let me say it like this. If you talk to somebody who says, hey, pray for my 
son, they're homeless and addicted to heroin. And, and your, your heart reaction is, yeah, that's, that's exactly what happens when you don't you know, disciple your kids the way I discipled mine. My kids would never do that. Then you've got a heart like this. Because the singing about a formula. If you don't realize you and I are just this close to being homeless and addicted to heroin, then you don't get the gospel. We're not better than any of those people. The grace of God is all that separates us. And so we pray God, miraculously intervene. Repent of self-righteousness. That's the primary application. I need to move on. Application number two, rejoice when the lost are found. We ought to rejoice when the lost are found. Did you notice in all three parables, the common denominator is something's lost, something's found, and then they have a party. Uh, We're Baptists, Jeremy. We don't party. We boogie. We'll do the Baptist boogie then. For us then, we do right by rejoicing when the lost are found. One of the ways we do that around here is when there's a baptism, we clap a lot, we celebrate. A few of us have been even known to whistle, even though we're in a church. But I'm wondering if we ought to do it a little bigger. Like if you have a blessed friend that you've been praying for and they come to know Jesus, I wonder if we should just throw a block party and just really blow it out. Because like I remember when so many of you were thrilled that the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, I remember how some of y'all partied for that deal. And I know most of you are happy, not everybody, but I know most of you are happy when that thing, I saw you guys go to the parade, I hear how you celebrate, and I'm just wondering if we could do something a little parallel when a person actually comes to know Christ for the first time. Because I'm not sure if in eternity we're going to be remembering who won the Super Bowl, but I'm pretty sure in eternity we're going to be remembering the lost souls that came to know Jesus. And seeing as this is of eternal consequence, I'm wondering if we get a little rowdier in here when a person who didn't know Jesus comes to know him let's go maybe even a few of us should boogie when the songs come on celebrating the lost knowing Jesus let's rejoice when the lost are found final application would love for you to write this down love those far from Christ love those far from Christ most important verse in Luke I'm convinced is Luke 19:10. for the son of man Jesus came to seek and save the lost And in case you haven't noticed, throughout the book of Luke, Jesus keeps hanging out with the kind of people that your grandma didn't want you to hang out with. Turns out, we're trying to hang out with people that Jesus wants us to hang out, even if it disappoints grandma at times. So I'm trying to get us, church, to pattern our lives after Jesus, who, verse 1 of chapter 15, is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. The kind of people that makes religious people go, oh my word, I can't believe that he's, he actually invited them over to supper. Yes, let's receive sinners and have them over for dinner. Do you see how scandalous Jesus' company was? For us then, church, we need to be relating with people who are far from Christ. Do you even know someone who is far from Christ? You You must. You must know somebody who's far from Christ. Are you praying for them? 
Are you? Here's my fear. I'll shoot you straight. Here's my fear. My fear is we don't really care about people who are far from Jesus. And the only way I can make sense of that is I guess we don't really believe in hell. I guess I can't figure out otherwise. Because because according to Jesus, hell is eternal, conscious suffering. According to Jesus, this thing's forever. And every day there's people who are dying, who don't know Christ. And so I just, I don't know how we can go about our days relating to people who don't know Christ and not want to beg God, please find them. Some of you parents have children who are prodigals, and I wish our church would have the same heart for the lost that you parents have for prodigal kids. Some of you parents, you don't sleep some nights because you're so worried about your kids, and you know spiritually they are headed to hell, and so you beg God, night after night, please save my kids. And that heart is beautiful, And we want to join you in praying for your lost child to know Christ, your lost children to know Christ. And oh, that that attitude would permeate this church and we would be a people who care for the lost with that kind of love. And the way that happens is by remembering Christ's heart for you when you were lost. Right? Because when you finally realize, man, I was lost and the Father came after me, it changes your heart. And that is, of course, what changed Saul of Tarsus' heart. The most religious, pharisaical, smug, self-righteous person we can imagine. And God goes after him and changes him from being an older brother to a person who gets the gospel. This is the way Paul writes about himself in 1 Timothy 1.13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of which I am the foremost. And if God can save Saul of Tarsus, and if God can save you and me, he can save anybody. And the way that he did that, of course, was by having a perfect son. Not an older son, not a younger son, the perfect son who came into the world and died on the cross for all of our sins. Because of the love of Jesus for you, let us then not ignore God's mercy to others, but rejoice when the lost are found. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your perfect son. Holy Spirit, convict of sin wherever people are. For those who need to repent from their prodigal lifestyle, empower them. For those who need to repent of their self-righteousness, grace them to do that. Make us people who believe you, believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Let's stand together.
Calvary hands bond for me both now and give you the Lord's benediction. Two updates. One is, if you hadn't heard, we're excited that we're going to be planting a church. Uh, Jonathan Drendel and his wife and a core team are headed down there. They're going to have an interest meeting next Sunday at 1030 a.m. If you found yourself going, I kind of would like to know some more information. Doesn't mean you have to go plant, but you'd like some more information. They'd love for you to join them 1030 a.m next week. Second update, tonight we have a Sunday night forum. Uh, we have these uh, quarterly. We would love for you to be here. If, if you're a member, we'd expect you to be here. If you're um, a guest, you're just checking us out, you ought to show up because you're going to get a good taste of what we're like um, when no one's looking on a Sunday night. So we'd love to have you here. If you're one of those people who've been attending here for a long time and you're not a member, um, just know we'd like you to move from not a member to a member. And tonight would be a great way to come hear some more about that. So Sunday night forum tonight, five o'clock. We have some food, 545, 5.35, the festivities begin. Well, now for the Lord's benediction. Saul of Tarsus, he became Paul. This is what he writes in his letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 3, 11. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Church, as we go, may we be full of love for one another and for all 
so that when Christ comes, he would see his people loving his way. Now go in the power of Jesus and in his spirit and share this love with those who are far from him. Amen, church. Go in peace. Stay in my